Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read Angela Y. Davis's Freedom is a Constant Struggle, Ferguson, Palestine, and the Foundations of a Movement. We are still reading this outside of City Hall. This entire book we want to read outside of City Hall as part of the occupation that is going on by the May 30th Alliance. This occupation began on October 3rd, 2020, after Tyrus Jones was shot by the Rockford Police Department while he was running away unarmed and the May 30th Alliance and community members and uh, some other organizations came outside of the city hall demanding that the mayor of Rockford, Illinois give answers and uh, updates about the uh, of information about the shooting that took place, demanding that the mayor condemn the ongoing racist violence that the Rockford police department had been perpetuating throughout the year of 2020. But those were all things that the mayor of the city has refused to do, to this day refuses to do it. There's been multiple officer-involved shootings since the shooting of Tyrus Jones, which took place on October 3rd, 2020. And he has refused to, at any point in time, condemn those actions by the workers of violence that are part of the Rockford Police Department. And so we have continued our occupation of City Hall. So. At, again, as part of the occupation, we are reading Freedom is a Constant Struggle outside of City Hall. We did begin this podcast series by doing all the readings outside of City Hall, but as the winter came, it became more difficult to do that. Uh, one of the other things as well is at the very beginnings of the Rafa Reading Daily podcast, I was trying to get comfortable with the format I was going to use, trying to get comfortable with reading and then expounding perspectives, trying to get, trying to understand which books we were going to read and why we were going to read them. And so for me to try to get some type of stability, I decided it was best to try to start recording these podcast episodes inside. Also, there's a lot of sort of outside noise that filters into the mic some as we're doing these readings. And I thought that could be distracting as well. And so these were all things that led to me doing the vast majority of the passage the last pieces of literature we've read in, indoors however i want to get back while we still have a little bit more time before the season's all the way for the se- the fall season gets too cold for us to be outside i would like to get back to being outside and doing readings specifically because i think that it is well, specifically because I'm trying to spend more time outside of City Hall again, which I was not able to do during the summer because of multiple reasons. And But then on the side of that, I want to be outside of City Hall doing something that is productive and doing something that is beneficial to the organization and also doing something that calls to attention my presence outside of City Hall and having the podcast mic set up and reading does all of those things and accomplishes all of those things. So if you hear cars coming by, if you hear motorcycles coming by, if you hear a lot of outside noise, that is why that noise is there. I'm going to try my best to not let it become a distracting factor. And I think that some of the night readings will be easier than some of the daytime readings might be. So with all that being said, I would would next like to ask you to please share a link to this episode on whichever social media platform that you frequent the most. I would like to remind you that at 8 o'clock a.m. every single day, we release new episodes of the Rafa Reading Daily Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Pocket Cast, YouTube, and Facebook, anywhere podcast. 
anywhere audio is available, this podcast is available for consumption. Now, previously on Rock for Reading Daily, we completed chapter one of Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Y. Davis. And we spoke about <clears throat> we spoke about the importance of understanding that the struggle is a ongoing struggle. It's a, a constant struggle. It's not one that's just done in a day or done in a year. And why it's important for us to be persistent and be steadfast and to be perseverant in that struggle. We also spoke about the connections that exist between the struggles that going that are going on and have been going on in Palestine and the struggles that are being waged here in the United States of America as well. So let's move on to chapter two, which is entitled Ferguson reminds us reminds us of the importance of a global context. Okay. Following what happened in Ferguson, okay, this is Frank asking you a question. Frank, following what happened in Ferguson, what is your view of the framework of the new Jim Crow, the book by Michelle Alexander? Angela, Michelle Alexander's book on mass incarceration appeared precisely at a moment that represented the peak of organizing against the prison industrial complex. It became a bestseller and it popularized the struggle against mass incarceration against the prison industrial complex in a very important way. Of course, the argument that she makes about mass incarceration, reinstituting some of the very structures on civil rights that were fought for during the era of the mid 20th century black movement is very important. Ferguson reminds us that we have to globalize our thinking about these issues. And if I were to be critical in a friendly way of the text, I would say that what it lacks is a global context, an international framework. And she herself points this out, so this is not something about which she is unaware. In many of her talks, she explains that we also need this broader global context to understand the workings of the apparatus that has produced mass incarceration in the United States. Why do I say that Ferguson reminds us of the importance of a global context? What we saw in the police reaction to the resistance that spontaneously erupted in the aftermath of the killing of Mike Brown was an armed response that revealed the extent to which local police departments have been equipped with military arms, military technology, military training. The militarization of the police leads us to think about Israel and the militarization of the police there. If only the images of the police and not of the demonstrators had been shown, one might have assumed that Ferguson was Gaza. I think that it is important to recognize the extent to which, in the aftermath of the advent of the war on terror, Police departments all over the U.S. have been equipped with the means to allegedly, quote, fight terror, end quote. It's very interesting that during the commentary on Ferguson, someone pointed out that the purpose of the police is supposed to be to protect and serve. At least, that's their slogan. Soldiers are trained to shoot to kill. We saw the way in which that manifested itself in Ferguson. Frank. I lived in London for 10 years, and every time you saw a cop in the street, you got scared. They are technically, quote, civil servants, end quote, but they do not fulfill this function. You talked about the U.S., the police being militarized. During the demonstrations for Gaza in France and Paris, it wasn't civil servants in the streets. It was riot police. Robocop looking kind of people. This by itself creates and implies violence. Angela. Precisely. That was the whole point. 
And also, it might be important to point out that the Israeli police have been involved in the training of U.S. police. So there is this connection between the U.S. military and the Israeli military. And therefore, it means that when we try to organize campaigns of solidarity with Palestine, when we try to challenge the Israeli state, it's not simply about focusing our struggles elsewhere in another place. It also has to do with what happens in U.S. communities. Frank. We often talk here about the reproduction of the occupation. What's happening in Palestine is reproduced now in Europe, in the U.S., etc. It is important to make the link for people to understand how global the struggle is. But in your opinion, is Ferguson an isolated incident? Angela. Absolutely not. It's actually fortunate for those of us who are trying to participate in the building of a mass movement that some recent cases of police killings and vigilante killings have been widely publicized within the country, as well as internationally. We had Trayvon Martin, which, of course, was just the tip of an iceberg. Michael Brown is just the tip of an iceberg. These kinds of confrontations and assaults and killings happen all of the time, all over the country in large as well as small cities. This is why it is a mistake to assume that these issues can be resolved on an individual level. It is a mistake to assume that all we have to do is guarantee the prosecution of the cop who killed Michael Brown. The major challenge of this period is to infuse a consciousness of the structural character of state violence into the movements that spontaneously arise. I don't know whether we can say yet that there is a movement because movements are organized, but these spontaneous responses, which we know happen over and over again, will soon lead to organizations and a continual movement. Okay, let's take a moment to reflect on some of those passages. So one of the common occurrences throughout this podcast series has been, as we're reading one piece of literature, the author refers back to a different piece of literature that we've read already, or refers to a piece of literature that the May 30th Alliance has read on a different platform, and, or refers to a piece of literature that I plan to read as part of this Rafa Reading Daily podcast series in the future. And so that occurrence has happened here again with Angela Davis speaking about Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. And that is a book that has been mentioned multiple times in our readings in the end of policing. I know for a fact Alice Vitale mentioned it. I also believe that Mumia Abu-Jamal mentions The New Jim Crow in Have Black Lives Ever Matter, which was our first, the first book that we read in this series. And for me, the new Jim Crow opened up my mind to the importance that mass incarceration plays in the struggle that we are in. And I, it was after reading the new Jim Crow that I began to frame the struggle as the struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice. For a, a very long time, it was... I didn't have a title for the struggle or a, a, a specific designated things I was speaking about struggling against. You know, we police terrorism was probably the main tenant, the main point on the agenda. And inherently, if you're struggling against police terrorism, the next step is to struggle against mass incarceration because the two things are go hand in hand with each other. And for me, reading The New Jim Crow really showed me the intricacies of mass incarceration and all the different ways mass incarceration 
oppresses and exploits and marginalizes and victimizes people very much in the same way that the end of policing enlightened me to how and all the ways the institution of policing does those same things as well to people. And towards the very end of Matt, the book, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, she spoke about the importance of highlighting racial injustice within our struggles and that we that if we don't have struggles, if struggles don't have racial injustice as a primary concern, that they were doomed to fail. And so at the end of that book was really when I began to say, frame it together as police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice. And for me, that's really what that, that Michelle Alexander brings to mind. And that book brings to mind is, is mass incarceration and the, the connection mass incarceration has with police terrorism and racial injustice and how we got to this place with mass incarceration in this country. Now, I also think that one of the things I spoke of early on in this podcast series was the space that Angela Davis represents for me and what Angela, some of Angela Davis's writings and speeches have done for my ideology and my belief and how intersectionality and is something that the, the main, one of the main things I've gotten from her. And so for me, adding Angela Davis onto this curriculum onto, onto, or adding Angela Davis into this, the things that I was just speaking about, about police terrorism, mass incarceration, racial injustice, when I began to identify the struggle as being a struggle against those things, Angela Davis helped me to identify how those things go on all over the world and how to articulate the connections that our our country has with police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice, and how that connects to those same issues happening around the globe. And I think that's why I have tried my best with this podcast series to make sure that as we're reading things, they tackle different subjects and tackle different areas of those subjects and not just the same subject in the same area re repeatedly. And when they, when they speak about the militarization of the police, that's something that was a statement I heard a lot, the militarization of the police, militari militarization of the weapons that the police have. And it was a, it's a book entitled Rise of the Warrior Cop by Bradley Belko, which we read as the part of the Rockford reading, Rockford reading, part of the ongoing teaching at Say Their Name Square, which was when we, the May 30th Alliance read a different book every day in the month of April, 2021. And one of the books we read was The Rise of the Warrior Cop, Militarization of the America's Police Force, I think is the subtitle. And that book did a very good job of not just articulating how the weapons became militarized, but also how the mind state and the ideology became militarized. And so those are, those are some of the connections that I make off, off back. Okay. Let's move on to this next section. And I think the last thing I will add is this, is I agree wholeheartedly that we can't, when we struggle against, when an act of macroaggression, a macroaggression, aggressive act of police terrorism occurs as in the use of deadly force, it's important for us to advocate against those things 
by all the outlets that are possible for us. And part of advocating against those things means holding the individual responsible and accountable. But further than that, we can't allow an individual to be a scapegoat for an institution, an institutional problem or a systematic systemic problem. And so we have to go beyond just wanting the police officer to be indicted and to go to prison. And, you know, as a person who's a prison abolitionist, I don't, it's, it's a very conflicting thing when these acts of police terrorism manifest because I know that prison is not the end goal. That is not going to solve these things, that there are underlying issues that perpetuate these things that just simply throwing the officer in jail is not going to rid us of. However, that step in that direction means we're getting closer to addressing the institutional problems once you are once individuals are being held accountable because once an individual is being 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 held responsible and accountable for something you have to then figure out why this individual felt comfortable enough or felt the felt that they should do this and usually that lies behind pro, pro, procedure and policy and so i say all those things to say that the same way i spoke of the fulfillment of the individual is figuring out where the end what the individual's role is in the collective for for this struggle the same thing is true when uh, for the people for the things we're struggling against once we can figure out how to prevent and hold accountable or once we can figure out how to hold accountable the individuals that are perpetuating oppression and exploitation it helps us be able to put into perspective how to hold the institution responsible as well Okay. Frank, what does it say about the black civil rights movement that more than 50 years after MLK and Malcolm X, the targeting of black people, Latinos, Latinas, is still happening? Does that mean that the black civil rights movement has failed or that it's a continuous struggle? Angela, the use of state violence against black people, people of color, has its origins in an era long before the civil rights movement and colonization and slavery. During the campaign around Trayvon Martin, it was pointed out that George Zimmerman, a would-be police officer, a vigilante, if you want to use that term, replicated the role of slave patrols. Then as now, the use of armed representatives of the state was complemented by the use of civilians to perform the violence of the state. So we don't have to stop at the era of the civil rights movement. We can recognize that practices that originated with slavery were not resolved by the civil rights movement. We may not experience lynchings and Ku Klux Klan violence in the same way we did earlier, but there still is state violence, police violence, military violence. And to create an extent, and to a certain extent, the Ku Klux Klan still exists. I don't think this means that the civil rights movement was unsuccessful. The civil rights movement was very successful in what it achieved, the legal eradication of racism and the dismantling of the apparatus of segregation. This happened, and we should not underestimate its importance. The problem is that it is often assumed that the eradicate, eradication of the legal apparatus is equivalent to the abolition of racism. But racism persists in a framework that is far more expansive, far vaster than the legal framework. Economic racism continues to exist. Racism can be discovered at every level in every major institution, including the military, the healthcare system, and the police. 
It's not easy to eradicate racism that is so deeply entrenched in the structures of our society. And this is why it's important to develop an analysis that goes beyond an understanding of individual acts of racism. And this is why we need demands that go beyond the prosecution of the individual perpetrators. Frank. It reminds us, obviously, of South Africa, where legally apartheid was ended, but an economic apartheid, even sociological apartheid, is still in place. When we were in Cape Town for the Russell Tribunal, I was shocked to see people of color waiting every morning at the center of the street to be picked up by employers who deemed to pay them $3 an hour. I was horrified by the ghettos and shanty towns. You drive around the nicest beaches of Cape Town, and a few minutes later, it's like being in Mumbai or something. Angela. Well, what's also interesting in South Africa is the fact that many of the positions of leadership from which black people were, of course, totally excluded during apartheid are now occupied by black people, including within the police hierarchy. I recently saw a film on the Marikana miners. I recently saw a film on the Marikana miners who were attacked, injured, and many killed by the police. The miners were black. The police force was black. The provincial head of the police force was a black woman. The national head of the police force is a black woman. Nevertheless, what happened in Marikana was, in many important respects, a reenactment of Sharpville. Racism is so dangerous because it does not necessarily depend on individual actors, but rather is deeply embedded in the apparatus. Frank, and once you're in the apparatus, Angela, yes, and it doesn't matter that a black woman has the national police, the technology, the regimes, the targets are still the same. I fear that if we don't take seriously the ways in which racism is embedded in structures of institutions, if we assume that there must be an identifiable racist, Frank, the, the quote, bad apples, end quote, type of Angela, who is the perpetrator, then we won't ever succeed in eradicating racism. Frank, you were a pioneer along the lines of intersectionality. How has your thinking evolved? Angela, of course, intersectionality, or efforts to think, analyze, organize, as we recognize the interconnections of race, class, gender, sexuality, has evolved a great deal over the last decades. I see my work as reflecting not an individual analysis, but rather a sense within movements and collectives that it was not possible to separate issues of race from issues of class and issues of gender. There were many pioneers of intersectionality, but I do think it's important to acknowledge an organization that existed in New York in the late 60s and 70s called the Third World Women's Alliance. That organization published a newspaper entitled Triple Jeopardy. Triple Jeopardy was racism, sexism, and imperialism. Of course, imperialism reflected an international awareness of class issues. Many formations were attempting to bring these issues together. My own book, Women, Race, and Class, was one of many that were published during that era, including, to name only a few, This Bridge Called My Back, edited by Gloria Enzaldua, Gloria Enzaldua and Cherry Moraga the work of Bell Hooks and Michelle Wallace in the anthology, All the Women Are White, All the Blacks Are Men, But Some of Us Are Brave, Black Women's Studies. So behind this concept of intersectionality is a rich history of struggle, a history of conversations among activists within movement formations and with and among academics as well. 
I mentioned this genealogy that takes seriously the epistemological productions of those whose primary work is organizing radical movements because I think it's important to prevent the term, quote, intersectionality, end quote, from erasing essential histories of activism. There were those of us who, by virtue of our experience, not so much by virtue of academic analyses, recognized that we had to figure out a way to bring these issues together. They weren't separate in our bodies, but also they are not separate in terms of struggles. I actually think that what is most interesting today, given that long history both of activism and all of the articles and books that have been written since then, what I think is most interesting is the conceptualization of the intersectionality of struggles. Initially, intersectionality was about bodies and experiences, but now, how do we talk about bringing various social justice struggles together across national borders? So we were talking about Ferguson and Palestine. How can we really create a framework that allows us to think these issues together and to organize around these issues together? Okay, let's have a reflection. So in her response to one of the questions Frank asked her, Angela Davis makes mention of multiple different pieces of literature, but I would like to hearken to the her own book, Women, Race, and Class, which she mentioned. <clears throat> this is another piece of literature that we have read here as part of the Rockford Reading Daily podcast series. And as I talked about what I learned from the new Jim Crow, as I talked about what I learned from the end of policing, as I continue to talk about the things that I've learned and taken from Angela Davis, I think that it's also important I point out the things that I learned from women racing class. And for me, the book Women Racing Class was like a history book through the lens and a perspective of black women. And all the moments in history and events in history that I was familiar with were retold to me through the lens of black women and how they and the residual effect that those events had for black women in history. And I think a lot of times that's one of the things that needs to be done when we learn about some of the different intersections of, of, our, of our world. You have to sort of go back through history and go back through these different moments in history and these events in history and learn about those things again, but from a perspective of somebody that is somebody who is not part of the mainstream American narrative. And so you have to go back through the history of this country and see it through the lens of indigenous people, see it through the lens of indigenous women. You have to go back through the history of this country and see it through the lens of people in poverty, see it through the lens of working class people, see it through the lens of, of black women, see it through the lens of Latinas, see it through the, the lens of, of immigrants. And as you see these see these same events and same things unfold but through different lenses you begin to see you begin to see the the bigger picture of how all of these things uniquely affect all of us and so for me women race and class was a way to see how these moments in history uniquely affected black women and then also how they uniquely affected black women who were from different class groups <clears throat> And then uh, we also got you also I also learned a lot about how some of these some of the differences or some of the splintering within gender occurred because of race and class. 
And so those are some of the thoughts I have about the book, Women, Race, and Class, which is a very important piece of literature for the struggle that we're waging here. And to me, that book very much epitomizes the concepts of intersectionality. And, and then at the very beginning of this, again, we are confronted by the concept of just of a black individual being at the head of an oppressive system or at the head of a system that, that operates off of racist or discriminatory policies and procedures. And I think that it's very important for us to see multiple different iterations of that happening in different places for us to understand that we have to be against oppression no matter who is the person that is committing the oppression, no matter if the person committing the oppression looks like me or if they look like Mark Wahlberg or if they look like Queen Latifah. It doesn't matter as long as oppression and exploitation is being perpetuated by that person, as long as that person is continuing a system of of discriminatory procedures, then we must be against that person. And we also see here how in that first passage when we were learning about Cape Town and the things that were going on in Cape Town, we see how police, the institution of policing all over the world has some of these corrupt characteristics. Okay, let's continue reading. Frank. When we went to New York for the Russell Tribunal on Palestine session, we tried to get support from Native Americans and the black movement, but it proved very hard. We were 800 people in the audience. Maybe 5% were people of color. But you can't simply invite, okay, and then Angela responds, but you can't simply invite people to join you and be immediately on board, particularly when they were not necessarily represented during the earlier organizing processes. You have to develop organizing strategies so that people identify with the particular issue as their issue. This is why I was suggesting in response to the question about Michelle Alexander that these connections need to be made in the context of the struggles themselves. So as you are organizing against police crimes, against police racism, you always raise parallels and similarities to other parts of the world. And not only similarities, but also talk about the structural connections. What is the connection between the way the U.S. police forces train and our armed and Israeli police and military? So when you popularize that, encourage people to think about that, Frank, in a global way? Angela, exactly. This is one of the reasons I think so many people began to identify with the struggle against apartheid in South Africa. It wasn't a sense of, quote, oh, we have to lend solidarity to these people over there in South Africa, end quote. It was because they began to see that what we have in common, a connection. If that's not created, no matter how much you appeal to people, no matter how genuinely you invite them to join you, they will continue to see the activity as yours, not theirs. Frank, it's crucial to make this connection, right? For people to understand that we are all neighbors because otherwise that's where racism starts. When people think along the line that a black person doesn't have the same genes as a white one, Angela, one of the things I've been thinking about in relation to the need to diversify movements and solidarity with Palestine is that the tendency is to approach issues about which one is passionate within a narrow framework. People do this whatever people do this whatever their concerns are. But especially with the Palestine solidarity movement, my experience has been that many people assume that in order to be involved with Palestine, you have to be an expert. 
So people are afraid to join because they say, quote, I don't understand. It's so complicated, end quote. Then they hear someone who is truly an expert, who does indeed represent the movement, who is so thoroughly informed about the history of the conflict, who speaks about the failure of the Oslo Accords, etc., when this happened and why it's important. But too often people feel that they are not sufficiently informed to consider themselves an advocate of justice in Palestine. The question is how to create windows and doors for people who believe in justice to enter and join the Palestine Solidarity Movement. So that the question of how to bring movements together is also a question of the kind of language one uses and the consciousness one tries to impart. I think it's important to insist on the intersectionality of movements. In the abolition movement, we've been trying to find ways to talk about Palestine so that people who are attracted to a campaign to dismantle prisons in the U.S. will also think about the need to end the occupation in Palestine. It can't be an afterthought. It has to be a part of the ongoing analysis. Frank, talking about the abolition movement, even with my kids, I've noticed when we're playing, my little boy says, quote, okay, well, if you're bad, you'll go to jail, end quote. And he's three and a half years old. So he is thinking bad equals jail. This also applies to most people. So the idea of prison abolition must be a very hard one to advocate for. Where do you start? And how do you, and how do you advocate for prison abolition versus prison reform? Angela. The history of the very institution of the prison is a history of reform. Foucault points this out. Reform doesn't come after the advent of the prison. It accompanies the birth of the prison. So prison reform has always only created better prisons. In the process of creating better prisons, more people are brought under the surveillance of the correctional and law enforcement networks. The question you raise reveals the extent to which the site of the jail or prison is not only material and objective, but it's ideological and psychic as well. We internalize this notion of a place to put bad people. That's precisely one of the reasons why we have to imagine the abolitionist movement as addressing those ideological and psychic issues as well. Not just the process of removing the material institutions or facilities. Why is that person bad? The prison forecloses discussion about that. What is the nature of that badness? What did the person do? Why did the person do that? If we're thinking about someone who has committed acts of violence, why is that kind of violence possible? Why do men engage in such violent behavior against women? The very existence of the prison forecloses the kinds of discussions that we need in order to imagine the possibility of eradicating these behaviors. Just send them to prison. Just keep on sending them to prison. Then, of course, in prison, they find themselves within a violent institution that reproduces violence. In many ways, you can say that the institution feeds on that violence and reproduces it so that when the person is released, he or she is probably worse. So how does one persuade people to think differently? That's a question of organizing. In the United States, the abolitionist movement emerged around the late 1960s, early 1970s. The Quakers were very much a part of the emergence of the idea that we should consider abolishing imprisonment. The Quakers were present at the advent of the prison in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. They were the ones who originally thought the prison was a humane alternative to then existing forms of punishment because it would allow people to be rehabilitated. I would say that in the 1970s, there was a moment when abolition was taken seriously. 
This was around the time of the Attica Rebellion, when people seriously began to think about, I'm talking about prominent lawyers and judges, journalists, began to think about something other than imprisonment. Of course, eventually the pendulum swung in the opposite direction. That, in a sense, has been the history of the prison. On the one hand, there have been calls for changes, less violence, less repression, calls for reform and rehabilitation. But this never really worked. And so, on the other hand, there were calls for incapacitation and more punitive modes of control. All in all, the framework has always remained the same. So the idea that I think animated people who were working toward the abolition of prisons is that we have to think about the larger context. We can't only think about crime and punishment. We can't only think about the prison as a place of punishment for those who have committed crimes. We have to think about the larger framework. That means asking, why is there such disproportionate number of black people and people of color in prison? So we have to talk about racism. Abolishing the prison is about attempting to abolish racism. Why is there so much illiteracy? Why are there so many prisoners illiterate? That means we have to attend to the educational system. Why is it that the three largest psychiatric institutions in the countries are jails in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Rikers Island, Cook County Jail, and L.A. County Jail? That means we need to think about health care issues and especially mental health care issues. We have to figure out how to abolish homelessness. So it means you cannot think in such a narrow framework. This is what has, I think, permitted the jails and prisons to continue to grow and develop. Because we all have these ideas that somehow if you've committed a crime, then you need to be punished. So this is why we have to try to disarticulate crime and punishment in a popular sense by thinking about the, quote, prison industrial complex, end quote. Mike Davis was the first scholar slash activist who used the term, especially with respect to the growing prison economy in California. The group that founded Critical Resistance thought that this would be a way for people to move away from that notion of bad people deserving punishment and to begin to ask questions about the economic, political, and ideological roles of the prison. Frank, it's a big money-making business. Angela, it's totally a money-making business. Okay, let's take a moment to reflect. Okay, we're going to end this episode here. I think I was supposed to end this episode. I think my plan was to end this episode before the last segment that I just read. So this can be a little bit longer of an episode. But the last takeaways that I have from what we just read is, again, the importance that has to be put on articulating that this system of mass incarceration has profit and has money at the center of it. It is, at its core, a money-making business, not a human rehabilitation business. And Angela did a, an amazing job of speaking about the things that we need to address in our society that instead of addressing, we're just covering up with incarcerating people. When she speaks about illiteracy and needing to uh, address the educational system, when she speaks about the amount of the disproportionate amount of black people and people of color in the ma in mass incarceration and us needing to address racism and the history of racism, when she speaks about the fact that these jails have the biggest mental health care facilities and how we need to address public health and mental health specifically and abolishing homelessness. And those were things that, again, in the book, The End of Policing, were emphasized heavily as issues that are not being addressed by our society and, and are instead being addressed by these institutions of policing. 
And part of what happens is that each one of these groups of people we're speaking about are vulnerable groups. And the institution of policing and the institution of mass incarceration goes to further victimize and f further, further make further vulnerable those already vulnerable groups. Okay, so we're going to wrap this episode up here. We will be back again tomorrow for some more reading through Angela Davis's Freedom is a Constant Struggle. I think we will finish this chapter that we're reading up tomorrow and maybe start on the next chapter too. I'm not 100% sure. Please share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide people the opportunity to begin or further their journey in the struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice, and I will holler at you tomorrow.